So we're hurtling up towards the moon and presumably we don't aim at the moon um, because we want to go past. But where it looks perfectly clear and transparent is actually a solid shell of aether. And and for Plato, it is solid. It is solid. Yep, that's right. So so we're going to smack into it. (laughs) You could like drill into the crystalline spheres, Michael Bay style, sending drillers up into the sky. Yeah. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Philip. How are things there? In uh, dim, but otherwise okay. Dim, <laughs> yeah. You're dim on my screen. Mm-hmm. We have some. Whoever makes Skype, you know, you. I'm talking to you, Skype guy, or woman, or team. The amount of uh, technical difficulties you have put in there is really interesting it's extraordinary it's amazing it's amazing um i think it might prove that we're not living in a simulation is the fact that skype is so screwy that is that no no simulation could be detailed enough to have that many bugs yeah no creator would be that cruel oh well now we're into david hume territory (laughs) okay yeah or bill gates (laughs) (laughs) um so uh last week was very exciting we kind of painted a picture, a vivid three-dimensional picture of Plato's vision of the cosmos. And uh, it involved crystal spheres that uh, all the heavenly bodies were, each one of them, the sun, the moon, the planets, each one of them had their own crystal sphere this is what he thought what just give us a quick uh recap last week on yeah so what the uh if. sometimes called the the onion universe so there's these layers of concentric spheres of perfect crystal and embedded in the in each of these spheres is one of the planets uh and it is the the nature of these crystalline spheres to travel in perfect circles around us, around the center of the universe. So when we look up at the sky and we see the planets and the stars going around, the reason they're going around is because they're embedded in these crystal spheres. So the spheres that are close to us move around fairly quickly. So that would be like the moon. And then the spheres that are far away uh, have further to go. So that's why Jupiter takes a long time, for instance, to go around. Right. And this is, um, this is, was Plato's specific vision? Well, sort of Plato had kind of a crude version of it. And then it gets uh, polished up by people like Ptolemy, the uh, mm. uh, Greek astronomer. Right. Okay. Oh, Greek astronomer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they were, all, they, of course, duh. Plato's Greek as well. It's the Greeks. Um, so just, just to recap, if anyone's new to the show, the show is called What the If? Question mark. And by the way, sometimes I've debated, does, is the question mark part of the official title or not? Oh, yeah. And it is, except for things like Twitter or yeah, any usernames, they don't like the question mark in it. Sure. Actually, uh, hmm, you might, might be able to put it in there. 
nonetheless. On Twitter, we're What the If Show, by the way. If you, maybe you found us from there. Um, if not, go there. Uh, I can suggest that. And what we do is every week, we have a few different variations of if. If, you know, there's, a fork, there's an if fork in the road. And uh, sometimes we change something, one parameter of the universe. For instance, what if we could turn off friction? which was just a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Go check that out. That was a double feature. Uh, sometimes, like uh, what we started with our, our last episode, is we look at ifs that the other great, great ifers of the world, the legendary ifers, the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Ifame. It's really, my puns on this are too forced. Too forced. Uh, hall of fame ifers like plato uh, have made in the past what the if now actually here's a question as a matter of attitude did they how you know would plato have presented this like well maybe or what the if it's spheres you know what what the if what those lights we see going around the sky, what if each one of those is in a sphere or like, I've always wondered what is their level of certainty? Oh, um, by modern standards, very high. So, um, Plato doesn't give a whole lot of reasons for thinking he is right. Um, he just sort of states that this is going to be the case. Uh, Aristotle, on the other hand, has elaborate proofs that for instance, the earth is at the center of the universe. Uh, the earth doesn't move and that the heavenly bodies move around us. So uh, those specific points, Aristotle thinks he has proved in the strict logical sense of it could not be otherwise. That is, there is no possibility that the universe is not structured this way. Oh, that's interesting. So he's, use, he's using logic. Right. Um, um, there's no sense of uh, a hypothetical deductive model here, though. Where like nowadays we would say, if the universe was structured this way, what would be a consequence that we could go check? And that's not the way Aristotle did stuff. Like that was, that was totally, that was half-assed knowledge if you did it that way. <laughs> if, if you can't prove something to be true, then it's not really worth knowing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one clear difference we could say between the way they went about things back then in the good old days and now in the even better days is uh, now we need mathematical proof combined with evidence. Well, not necessarily mathematical because, you know, folks like biologists get along fine without uh, a lot of math. Hmm. Um, But there is a sense that uh, you need to be able to go check your ideas to see if they're correct. Oh, right. And so if it's uncheckable. Yeah. Then so even if you had exceptional logic, so Aristotle could present excellent logic. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a, really any ability to test so much. Yeah, and it wasn't, I don't think of ability as the question, so much as that was not seen as relevant. That is, the important thing was to be able to prove something logically. And if you could prove it logically, then why bother going to check it? Right. Yeah. Where would they have seen, like, were they, would they have said, here are the problems, here are the biggest problems of our age, and mm-hmm. 
we're working on it and maybe someday someone will solve that. Yeah, not many. Well, I should say we only get the finished product, right? We have the, the collected works of Aristotle, mm. um, which almost certainly includes things written by people other than Aristotle as well. Mm. So since we only get the finished product, we didn't see that exploratory phase. So Greek philosophy as we know it was sort of a completed project. And there were, you know, there were little bits to fill in um, and specific problems, but the grand problems had all been solved. Oh, interesting. We don't have the worksheets. That's right. <laughs> or the journals or scratch pads, mm-hmm. which probably weren't even scratch pads. They were probably conversations, you think? Yep. Almost certainly these are, these are uh, transcripts of conversations people had in the market walking around. Wow. Well, not dissimilar to a portion of Einstein's work and other great scientists. Uh, yep, there's something to that. Fortunately, Einstein did write some stuff down so we can reconstruct something. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, and then the other part about the attitude was that they would write, they would say, this is how it is. Was it, we have no idea, I suppose, but do we think we could speculate? Was it sort of like fake it till you make it? Or... No, I think it's reasonable to think that the Aristotelians were quite confident that uh, what they had was the, the correct and final answer. Smartest guys in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so there's very little sense of um, exploration in that, in that kind of thinking. Um, it's, uh, you find the, the right answer and then you're done. Interesting. Um, and it's been pointed out that this gives kind of a sclerotic view on knowledge. Like, what's the, what's the point of going out and looking for things if you think you've already got all the answers? Uh, you think that was their attitude? Well, that's, um, uh, that has, has been suggested that uh, a lot of European thought is kind of trapped in this mold for, for a long time. Um, and it isn't until, uh, say, the, uh, the early age of exploration that this really gets unsettled. Because if you think, so for instance, Aristotle writes a book about plants. So that's got everything you need to know about plants and a list of all of the plants you'll ever see. And then somebody comes back from the new world with a potato. Uh-huh. And Aristotle doesn't have anything to say about a potato. So what do you do with this thing? Right. This, so weirdly, these very humble things like the potato... Um, really start to overthrow this notion that uh, we understand everything about the world. Oh, okay, right. Because let's say before you could travel great distances and, and interact with other, other far-flung cultures, let's say, you kind of could see, I mean, you certainly weren't knowing everything about your world, but you could think that you did. Yeah, or at least somebody did, right? Somebody, somebody yeah. Yeah. Somebody you could talk to would have all the answers about this plant that you found. Yeah. Do you think was part of it also, um, and then we'll get back to our, we have a rocket ship um, warming up here on the launch pad. <laughs> it's uh, w- warming up or cooling down, you know, depending on what uh, we're, we're loading into it at the time. Uh, there's a lot of steam coming off here right now. Uh, what do you think it had something to do with? The fact that, like, for instance, before any attempt at science, they went on legends, myths, religious stories, 
and all of which are told, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a, <laughs> I've never heard a myth told as if like, well, we're not really sure, you know, what Icarus was thinking. Uh, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't really have evidence of Icarus building these wings. You know, none of that. It's like, they're just stories and they're told as fact. Oh, uh, it could be. I mean, Aristotle is well past that point. Mm sort of epistemologically, right? He doesn't much care about myths and tales and such. Ah. Um, he's, he's, he's grounded in that sense. So his ideas kind of seem silly to us today, but they're all grounded in observation and logical reasoning and all kinds of mental tools that we would recognize. Wow. So is, is he the first to do that? Uh, he often gets the credit for it. Um, and if people are a little more generous, they, they broaden that to a group called the pre-Socratics. Mm. Uh, who, as as the name suggests, is a group of thinkers kind of right before Socrates, mm. um, who who begin postulating that uh, people should try to figure things out for themselves, and the world acts on its own by its own rules and its own properties, and should try to be understood on its own terms, um, as opposed to say uh, mythological tales. Wow, interesting. Okay, that's fascinating. So these are the first. Kind of the first scientists, the first germs. Uh, people of, often want to talk about them. Way, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, so Aristotle, Plato, or I don't know, are these guys at the exact same time? Where is Plato? Plato. So let's take these three: Plato, Ptolemy, and Aristotle. Mm -hmm. What's the chronology with those guys? Oh, so um, Aristotle and Plato are third and fourth century BC. And then Ptolemy doesn't come around until the first century AD. Mm. Okay. So uh, Plato and Aristotle are the age of sort of Greek city-states um, before there is a, a unified Greek civilization. Mm. And then Alexander the Great, uh, who is Aristotle's student, conquers the known world uh -huh. um, and creates what we think of as Greek civilization. Uh, and then, you know, hundreds of years later, Ptolemy is, um, uh, is living in this, he's living in Egypt, uh, which was conquered by the Greeks. So it's very confusing because there's a, there's a sense in which he's Egyptian and Greek and Roman all at the same time, huh. because you're conquered by the Romans, but they speak Greek and they're in Egypt. So... Uh -huh. There's this in intensely multicultural environment. So when we say Greek, we have a particular, you know, we think about, you know, bald white guys with beards and togas. Right. right? But really, it needs to include uh, Africans and Persians and modern day Turks and Indians. Uh, that it's really a fantastically cosmopolitan empire. Wow. Very multicultural. Yeah. Wow, that's boy, somebody's really got to get to work on those murals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say actually there are murals with of, you know, Greeks um with deep brown skin, right? Mm, People mm. who we would recognize as African today. Um mm. but those aren't the ones that get reproduced in the books very often. So Right. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that, that, there's a whole story there. So to re to to recap last week uh, we were saying, what, what did 
first I said, what did the ancient Greeks think? And then we got, we were looking at Plato specifically proposed that the soul, that the universe, not just the solar system, although it sounds like there wasn't much difference. The solar system was the universe, was made up of these crystal spheres called ether, right? made, made of ether, which is some unknown, which stands for, we don't know. Um, well, it's uh, supposed to be this crystal stuff. It's perfect, beautiful. Right, right. Uh, so, see, if, if science could stop there, we really would, we would probably progress a lot faster. Look, I don't know. It's cool. It's nice. <laughs> what do you want to know? Um, yep, that's right. But there's less work to do then, right? There's, there's nothing true. for your postdoc to do. That's you know? true. <laughs> it's poor job security. <laughs> so, so I want to I want to fly through Plato's universe. That's what right. we want to do. So we got this rocket ship here. It's ready now. The green light is on, and we're going in. And we're, let's let's go. Everybody, come with us. We invite you, our listeners. Come with us. Um, bring your backpacks. Bring your trail mix, and uh, put you know put your backpacks up in the overhead bins. Don't fight over that. We'll sit down. We'll put on our seatbelts, and we're going to take off. And did Plato ever imagine going into the air or space? Um, he did not. I should say there are lots of other cool Greek era what we would think of as space exploration stories. Um, and they often are of the uh, um, uh, shipwreck variety. That is, you sail too far and discover that you're on Venus. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay. So those stories often do not follow the, the Greek cosmology per se. Um, they're much more hand wavy, uh, but they're these fantastic. I'm blanking on the the name of the great one, but there's one of these great stories that involves yeah sailors that shipwreck on Venus, and there's uh, battles between um, pirates and boats sailing between the different planets. It's really pretty awesome. Wow, early science fiction. Yeah, that is really cool. I love that. Oops, we wound up on Venus. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now, th th would that have involved the fact that there were these spheres that they had to get through and stuff, or it was just... Well, like no. So this is an interesting one is that, you know, we talk about the Greek cosmos, but there's no, there isn't a lot of uniformity of belief. So at the same time, people believed in uh, the platonic spheres. There were also people who said, well, maybe the spheres aren't solid, but they're liquid like an ocean. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. So that would then make sense that you could you could row your boat through them if you're so inclined. Awesome. Right. right. Yeah. So there's no there's no universities. There's no uh, standard boards. <laughs> there's no accreditation <laughs> institutes. People believe kind of whatever they feel like. Um, uh, so you get uh, this kind of heterogeneous mix of cosmologies at any given time. Oh, interesting. Right. And there's no rigorous system for like. Like nowadays, we would say, well, the scientists have established, at least right. to some degree. Uh, mm -hmm. Then it's just, well, he says that and he says that. And Yeah. So if you're an Aristotelian, you believe this. If you're a Platonist, you believe that. Oh, right, right, okay. right. Okay, interesting. So we're going to take off. Now, did Plato specify distances at all? You, you, you mentioned last week that sort of he would describe proportions that, you know, or, or that the, if, you could measure 
what appeared to be the distance to the sun, and then everything else was just a multiplier of that. Or uh, yes, um, and specifically the the distance to the moon, the the ratio of the distance between um, the Earth to the moon and the Earth to the sun. So they could they had a good estimate of that. It's wildly wrong, but they had a a solid estimate, and then that was the um, uh, the benchmark by which you measured everything else. Right. So Mars was three times as far away as the sun, um, and Saturn was 27 and so on. Right. So first thing we, we have to be careful of, we have to take off at the right, we have to launch at the right time of day. We don't want to launch when the sun is overhead or in our path because the first object we're going to encounter is the sun. Yeah, that would be awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of amazing. So this, they didn't, uh, Plato did not think the sun was very large. Uh, no, not certainly not by modern standards. Yeah, so significantly smaller than the Earth. Right. But he did not, you're saying he, he didn't like, they, they were moving beyond myths and legends. And so he didn't believe it was Apollo pulling uh, a cart or... Right. Yeah. There was, there was none of that. He did think the celestial bodies had some kind of divine element to them, like stars or souls, for instance. Um, but, but it's not the personified gods running around stabbing each other with spears kind of thing. Right. Um, uh, much more similar to the, uh, uh, Christian sense of a, uh, disembodied perfect God. Mm, mm, mm. So like we're, we're in this beautiful sort of jewel-like apparatus. Yeah. Um, so did he think the sun was a solid thing? So in other um, words, could, could, how close, yeah. did, I don't know, did he have any idea of how close we could get to the sun? Um, I don't know if anyone, I, I don't recall uh, um, anybody making that calculation. But uh, there's a, a long tradition in which the sun is bright, but not necessarily hot. Mm, mm-hmm, mm. Okay. So heat is actually something that's associated more with uh, the earth per se than the celestial bodies. Mm. Uh, so if it's one of those, so for instance, um, you know, Saturn is bright, uh, right. but does not seem to be hot. So presumably you could go right up and touch it. Oh, well, that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, or the the story of Icarus does that have a particular place in time? Oh, so that would be pre Plato, um, <clears throat> and uh, and again, there's there isn't really an implicit cosmology in that story. So, other than the fact that the sun is above the the height of the Earth, right? Um, but and it could but, melt but, your but, wings. It does melt our wings? Yes. So that story yeah. does suggest that you're right that we need to time our ascent uh, correctly. So nighttime is the right way to go. That's right. So we can go at night. Yeah. It's going to be a night launch, which is often pretty amazing. Yep. Um, and did, so, so what did they think night was? Oh, so the explanation would be the same as it is today, which is that the sun is on the far side of the earth. Oh. Yeah. Um, so they knew the earth knew the earth was round. Um, they weren't entirely sure what was on the other side uh, of the earth. Right. Um, 
Plato hypothesized that the earth, the earth must be symmetrical. So if there's land masses like Europe and Asia and Africa on this side, there must be symmetric masses on the other side too. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So at night, nothing, there's nothing weird or magical or sinister about yeah. the night. Now you mentioned that they said, Plato said the stars were like souls. Yeah. What's that about? Like each one is a different one? Or? Yeah, that's right. So when a, a person is born, um, they are endowed with a soul that literally comes down from the, the furthest sphere. And Ooh. when someone dies, their soul is uh, freed up and goes zooming out to hang out among the stars again. Well, that could certainly give us a goal for our mission. Yes, right. let's go visit Aunt Sally. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's kind of amazing. So, so the, the, the people on, if we were bringing, um, uh, let's say we went back in time to take this journey, mm -hmm. which makes only slight logical sense because we're going into Plato's universe. But uh, we bring along some native Greeks of the second or third century BC, BCE, they are thinking, wow, we're going up, we're going to be getting close to the souls of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be pretty nifty. And, would and, there also, of course, yeah. and of course, Greek literature is full of stories um, of people visiting the, the afterlife, right? Mm, that's of, right. Yeah. You know, right? Um, so that, that claim would not be particularly outrageous to the people you are talking to. Um, right. right. So, yeah, so sure. what's happening is it sounds like also that Plato and his like, his kind are thinking in these rational, non-mythological terms, let's say more lot trying to trying to base everything on logic but mm -hmm. the people around them are probably still going by the myths uh very often yep that's right yeah okay so interesting which is one of the reasons for instance plato says you cannot let democracy work because all these there are all these stupid people out there that believe stupid things so you need to have a philosopher king uh that is a, a properly smart person uh, to actually run things I don't know about the king part, but the people party might be right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, off we go. Did they have a sense of what gravity was? Yes. So uh, gravity to them is the tendency of solid objects to want to go to the center of the universe. Huh. All right. So you can actually convince yourself of this without too much difficulty. So if you just grab some heavy object nearby, like a book or a cat or something, right. um, <laughs> and, and you suspend it, and then you let go, you see it trying to get downward. Yes. Right? Yeah. And if you sort of, and of course it hits something on the way down, a table or a floor or something like that. But you can imagine that if it didn't hit anything, it would just keep going. To the center of the earth. Right. Yeah. Oh, which is the center of the universe. Which is the center of the universe, right? Because ah. Aristotle proves that that's the case. Right. So we know it is, the, it is the nature of solid objects to want to get to the center of the universe. It's so interesting because when you first said to the objects, they thought that objects wanted to go to the center of the universe, then my total image was of things flying up into the sky. Yeah, that's right. It's precisely the opposite. Which is actually no more accurate than going down to, towards the earth because the center, yeah, of, the no center of the universe is out a, there in the modern sense. That's yeah. a whole nother bizarre concept. 
The center is everywhere. Um, okay, so we're taking off. Now, they did understand, like, we know the Chinese had rockets. I'm assuming the Greeks, well, they understood. They did not, but we can, I mean, we can have the Greeks rig up, rig up a big trebuchet or something like that. Ah, so they didn't have gunpowder or any of these? They did not. Um, the ah. Chinese have gunpowder for a thousand years before the Europeans steal it. Oh, wow. Okay. That is a basic fact I should have known, but didn't even think about. So all the fighting, like, yeah, right. If you think about the Iliad, it's all just yeah, It's all just people stabbing each other, throwing rocks. Yeah. Swords, knives, javelins, right, rocks. And uh, Trojan horses. So off we go. We're taking off. We're, we're going to, well, they would have used a catapult. So, right? I mean, they must yeah, have had that. That's a catapult, they right? had catapults. So that's mm -hmm. what we're going to do. We're going to launch by catapult. Right. The biggest catapult ever built. And uh, off we go. Okay. Swing. They, they, they've, they've, for some reason, maybe happily, the wars have ended. Uh, they don't feel the need to have, uh, you know, a million ships and all this kind of stuff. And they've devoted everything to their space program. And they built this giant, you know, catapult. And yep. pooled their resources. Exactly. Pooled their resources and didn't bother to send dogs or monkeys first. We are the first. So off we go. Fly. Now, <laughs> it's a basic question, but I'm... Uh, uh, we don't need to calculate it, but I'm guessing the amount of force, well, needed to launch by catapult as opposed to rocket would be many Gs. Uh, it would, um, but the scale is, remember, much smaller than we're used to. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to go as high as we think. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Off so we, we might go. survive it. We, yeah. Right. And as far as Plato understands in his universe... There's air in space? Or? There is. So we haven't talked about this, but the, um, you know, there's four elements in classical Greek thought, uh, earth, air, fire, and water. Right. right. And those are arranged more or less in layers in the universe. So oh. earth is at the center, is a ball, right? right. Uh, and that's because all the earthy things want to get to the center. And then there's a layer of water around that, right? And how mm. do you know that? Uh, the ocean? Ocean, yep, exactly. Right. And the Earth pokes through the ocean in a few places, and then we call those islands and continents and things. Uh, okay. Um, but for the most part, it's clear that water is above, is a layer above Earth. <laughs> and then you have a layer of air right. on top of that. Yep. Um, and you know that air has to be above water because, like, bubbles go up when you're underwater. Good. Right? Yeah. And then you, have a, you need to have a layer of fire. Right. Uh. Um, so how do you know that fire has to be above air? Because it flames go up. Because flames go up. Yes. Right? This is, this is, you know, oh, I was talking this... a moment ago about how the Aristotelian system is all empirical. It's yeah. based on these very basic observations of the world around us. So you always see fire go up. So that's clearly where fire wants to be in the universe. Wow. You know, if, if, uh, science today were as easy as that, I probably would have stayed in it. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> the physics teacher at the college level. Okay, so flame fire is clearly above. Why, class? Because flames go because up. Because flames go up. <laughs> right. And I should say, and that, that simplicity is also one of the reasons it's so persuasive, because you don't need a mathematical proof or a rigorous experiment. You just, if you've ever seen a fire, 
you have all the information you need to make this system work. Right, right, right. So I guess yeah. one, one of the also another major leap that happens in the history of science and, and thought is that um, as uh, um, Neil Tyson says often, and the, one of the credos of science is that your eyewitness testimony is worthless. Right. Yes. And that's and that is one of the, the moments when that's when experimentation becomes reasonable. Right. As right, soon as you right. start thinking that your ordinary experience is perhaps not so reliable, then it becomes sensible to do things like run experiments. Right. 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 So up we go. All right. So up we go. So we go through our layer of air. That's right. good. So the layer of fire is going to be quite. And a, then the layer of fire is going to be a little tricky. Um, there's there's a slight ambiguity here because when you look up in the sky, you don't usually see a layer of fire, right? Right. So there's this question of where is it? Oh, right. um, my personal head explanation for this is that the layer of fire is just very thin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to see. So maybe even as we hit the layer of fire, if it's thin enough, then we can probably get through unscathed. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's more like the fire on top of... Uh... Like you can light a fire on top of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and you can pass your hand through that. Don't do this at home. No. <laughs> but <laughs> Did you get like you these can, blue flames coming off? Right. The, you can the, stick your hand through an alcohol fire um, quickly and you won't get harmed. Yeah. Right. Definitely don't do this at home, by the way, if you have consumed alcohol. Yes, yeah, so this is the problem is that the very presence of alcohol makes it less <laughs> likely you're going to do this experiment safely. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So up we go through the layer of fire, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting, although if you think about, you know, there is that w during reentry, when things come back, it's, uh, then there is kind of layer there of is fire. a layer of fire. I mean, it's right. friction from the air, but uh, certainly coming back, there is a layer of fire. So up we go through that. Maybe today we would call that the equivalent to the Van Allen radiation belts or something. We go through this layer and beyond that is so the next layer is a crystal sphere uh oh that the sun is in uh the moon actually the moon's the first one oh okay so the moon is in front of the sun yeah because that takes the sun a year to go around it only takes the moon a month oh so the day the the, the fact oh. yeah this is it, it gets a little confusing so the the earth goes around or the sun goes around both uh in a day and a year so that averages out to almost a year. Right. Although that makes sense because I guess when you look up at the, the sun and the moon on any given day or night, they go together. Yeah. And, but right. the moon definitely moves a lot more each night. Mm -hmm. than yeah, that's the idea. The sun moves during the day. So, yeah. so we're hurtling up towards the moon and presumably we don't aim at the moon because um, we want to go past. But where it looks perfectly clear and transparent is actually a solid shell of aether. And, and for Plato, it is solid. It's not one it of those, solid. not one yep, of these heretics right. so, who said it was like So we're like going to smack into it. <laughs> <laughs> so the best we can hope to do is land on the crystal sphere. That's right. And whether or not you could like drill into the crystalline spheres, I don't know. Right. Maybe if you, if you had a good drill. Yeah. And but that would be the, that would be the kind of operation you would have to do. Um, Michael Bay style sending yeah. drillers <laughs> yeah. up into the sky. So, so even our basic words don't work very well for this because we want to say go into space when we mean 
go visit the planets. Right. But there is no space. Right. The the Greek cosmos is is full. It's called a plenum. There's no oh. there's no gaps. There are no empty areas in which you could zoom through. Whoa. And beyond and like you said, so e- there's these these crystal spheres. So we are <laughs> our mission has been very short. We made it to the first crystal <laughs> sphere. So this was we, we'll have to wait for further technology to analyze this crystal sphere and figure out a way to get through it. Um, mm-hmm. I think also visiting the moon, I, I think visiting the moon would be pretty cool. I think we would think probably would aim cool. for that. So we're, we're finding the moon, this, which you said they considered almost like a jewel or maybe a pearl like object. Uh, mm-hmm. What about the, the face on the moon that, or, you know, the shadow, the different, the blotches. Uh, so on this the moon, is right? actually um, uh, a point of uh, some, uh, some difficulty, uh-huh. which is that, all the planets are supposed to be, all the celestial bodies are supposed to be perfect um, mm. and perfect in exactly the sense you're thinking of. So perfectly spherical, without blemish, right. unchanging. But when you look at the moon, it looks kind of blotchy. Yeah. So uh, this is a problem of, of explaining why it looks blotchy when it's actually not. So this is actually an important subfield of cosmology. Um, oh. for a long time, so explaining why the really? moon looks blotchy. Wow. Um, and the general explanation is it is per- that it actually is perfect, and we're looking through clouds or the human ability to see is not reliable or something like that. Right. And this is why Galileo looking at the moon with the telescope in 1609 is such a big deal, is that he's able to document in great detail that the moon is not perfect. Wow. He sees for the first time that those are three-dimensional Exactly. He says there's mountains, there's valleys, there's craters. Right. Um, wow. And that's what most of his, most of his, his great book, the Sidrius Nuncius, is this, is trying to convince you that he has seen uh, that the moon looks just like the earth. Wow. And he has to convince you of that. He does. And, yeah. Right. Of course. Because he was the only one who could see. He yeah, couldn't take Because he didn't want to give anybody his telescope. So. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Because <laughs> it, was, it was a moneymaker. You don't give away your moneymaker. Well, it wasn't just that he couldn't take pictures and stuff. It's, you know, he literally charged more than like the friendly guys in the park do when they set up the local yes, astronomy right. club, you know. Um, wow. And that must have been amazing. I mean, who, for him to have seen that the first time must have been quite like insane. Yeah. Um, did he then also say, oh, there's no crystal spheres? That was his argument, is that, yes, there's, uh, if the moon is not perfect, then the idea that the celestial bodies are all perfect spheres is probably not right. Wow. Uh, and therefore, it's got to be something else. He didn't really have an alternative, per se. He right. spent some time trying to figure this out, but he never really gives an alternative. Um, but the crystalline spheres were actually had actually been in doubt for a couple of decades before this, mm. after a guy named Tycho Brahe. Mm-hmm. Um, observed a comet come through. And comets were traditionally assumed to be within the atmosphere. Right, okay. Yep. So, so this yep. is why, for instance, we say meteor in meteorology. Uh-huh. It's because meteors were supposed to be a weather phenomenon. Uh-huh. Um, but Tycho is able to take measurements of how far away the comet is at any given time. Right. Um, and which no one had really been able to do before. So he just kind of marks down on his map where, how far away the comet is from the earth and finds that 
it seems to be passing through the crystalline spheres. That is, it's going from Whoa. layer to layer. And that's not, if they're supposed to be solid objects, that's not possible. Right? And in his, what year, what year he's in the... That's 1577. So in 1577, they are still believing in the crystal spheres. Yep, that's right. Wow. So this is, by the way, this is news to me. And let's make it clear to our listeners, audience, that listening audience, that uh, this isn't like, we didn't pluck some weird fringe idea of the cosmos, you know, by saying, hey, let's look at what, what did Plato say? Like, this was the reigning belief. Right. This is the, the dominant way to think about the universe for almost a couple thousand years. A couple thousand? That's amazing. That's amazing. Did, uh, then my last question is, did Galileo or Tycho uh, Brahe, is that his last name? Mm -hmm. um, did they have a, did, did they make any note of some sort of emotional reaction to the fact that like, whoa, what if the spheres aren't there? Yeah, there's a bit of a crisis. Um, it takes a while to sort of settle in. And by while, I mean a hundred years or so. Wow. But as people start to uh, grapple with what it means to have these open spaces, and, and if you believe Copernicus, like Galileo did, then the scale of the universe gets much, much larger as well. So you not only have these open spaces, but the distance between things becomes massively inflated by factors of, you know, a thousand. Yeah. So uh, Pascal, the great French thinker uh, of the 17th century, famously writes of his, his terror of the infinite spaces. Yeah. Uh, and this is a great existential moment. For what, what does it mean to be human on this little speck of dirt in this vast universe? Um, and I think there's a sense in which we're still grappling with that same problem today. Yeah, it's almost like a sense of vertigo. I mean, that's like when I imagine the spheres being there and then suddenly not actually being there. It almost feels like, I don't know if they got to this level of description, but like, It'd almost be okay. The universe now we know is well, what is it, 13 billion light years yep. across, right? The observable mm -hmm. universe. So a vast number, difficult to imagine. But like, it almost feels like if the spheres were there, it'd be okay. Yeah, it's, it's a cozy universe, right? It, yeah. it's, at a, it's at a reasonable scale. Right. Um, everything's full. Everything has a purpose and a meaning. Yeah. Um, and you know where you are in that scheme. Uh, and that is one of, the, I think, one of the reasons it survives for a long time is it's really nice. Yeah. And it gives you a clear delineator, a clear border between, you can clearly almost uh, cut off the unknown part. You can just say, there, here, there yep. be dragons. Just don't worry about or, that. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, but the souls are, you know, it's just out there. And in fact, you get eight or nine. Sh well, no, I guess they didn't know about the outer planets, but five or six shells, whatever it was. Um, mm -hmm. That's a lot of coziness, you know. Um, and suddenly they're all gone. They all vanished. Yep. Fascinating. Oof. I guess just so, just in this tiny little thought experiment, mm -hmm. got a much better appreciation for the sense of the shifts from, you know, for instance, how important Galileo was okay. and Plato, you know, yeah. the fact that this lasted so long. And then you really, if you have, if you get into the sense of what the beliefs were before, let's say Galileo, 
you can much better appreciate what it is that he's wiping away. That's kind yep. of amazing. That's right. and, and, and to understand that it was a highly rational, self-contained system that had a lot of evidence for it and did a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So, well, when we look up at the stars tonight, we can look for Plato's soul. Is there a star name for Plato? Uh, not to my knowledge, but I'll bet there's a crater named after him. Yes. They <laughs> we gave you a crater. Uh, something you didn't even think would be a good idea, that there would be this blemish you are named after. Sorry about that. But um, very, very, very cool. So when you look up in the sky, appreciate the fact that there are no, for better or worse, there is no crystal sphere between yeah. you and the infinite, infinite. Fantastic. What a, wow, what a great journey on our little catapult. Uh, by the way, I'm not sure how we get back. So I leave that to you, our <laughs> listeners, to figure out what do we do? Do we stay up here? Do we build a uh, permanent uh, camp, a permanent base here on the pearly moon and the crystal spheres? Or do we figure out a way to head back? I guess gravity is just going to pull us back. Yep, we'll come crashing into the ground. It doesn't have zero gravity out here. We all go crashing back. So hold on to your hats. Here we go. Um, Send us your own ideas, too, by the way. I know you have ideas. Even just listening to this story, you came up with ideas. And just simple, straight-up questions like, well, what was that? Or what was that? Or tell me more about that guy. Mm -hmm, Sure. What he did. Uh, Shoot us us your thoughts uh, via catapult or any other means. Um, Come to us on Facebook. I'm going to start with Facebook. Before Facebook always gets left, the last thing I mentioned. Facebook. We're on Facebook. What the if? Facebook.com slash what the if. I think it is. It's a page. It's not a person. It's a page. What the if? So go there. Um, you can see all our episodes there. And you can comment on the different ones. And you can send us messages. Uh, and you can also learn about who, a little bit more about who we are. We are also on Twitter. The great Twitterverse. Uh, we are at what the if show. All one word. And... Our audience grows every every week, uh, every day. Um, some of you are bots. Some of you are not. Um, it doesn't matter to me. I'm an egalitarian lover and supporter. <laughs> if you're a bot that loves science, rock on. Yeah, I mean, if you're a bot, us. you might enjoy science more than these silly humans with their other uh, needs and thoughts. So at What The If Show, we are sponsored by a wonderful guild called the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, who very much would have appreciated Plato. And in fact, I know, sell uh, wonderful gifts uh, with a bit of cheeky humor that celebrate Plato and Ptolemy and Galileo. And I think maybe Tycho Brahe. uh, Sure. Probably in both um, bobblehead form, perhaps, um, (laughs) and uh, other... Uh, bookmarks, I think, um, and uh, definitely finger puppets. So uh, they gave me a little a little thinger here to read, which I'm going to read. Uh, what the If podcast, that's us. And that's you, if you're listening. What the If podcast is supported by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, makers of finger puppets, see, line, of the great philosophers and Freudian, oh, they also make, wait for it, Freudian slippers. Yes. Put them on, wear them.
You can find all these things at thephilosophersguild.com. That's their website, philosophersguild.com, the unemployed philosophers guild. Smart, funny gifts for your smart, funny friends and your smart, funny listeners and your smart, funny hosts. That's us. That's us. Next week, we're going to pick up with another. Uh, we, we have received a number of uh, wonderful um, suggestions from listeners, but don't let that stop you. Uh, if we don't pick your idea for any particular week, it doesn't go away. It goes into a vast bucket of um, bubbling knowledge and the reservoir. Yeah, the reservoir of like uh, fictional and non-fictional particles that come in and out of existence, and we put you in there and reach in. We we could any any week your idea could come up and get ifed. You will be ifed. Uh, Matt, did you 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 are off to do an exciting? I'm event. giving uh, some lectures in Mexico City this weekend. Actually, ah, that's great. It, it, is it at uh, what's the place? Do you know, or is it at the Hall of Science of Mexico City? Uh, it is at the the Day of Knowledge event. Um, oh, I'm not sure about the the actual venue, right. but if anybody finds themselves at Teochitlan, come say hi. Awesome. Day of Knowledge in Mexico City. That would be fantastic. Alrighty. Next week, we will construct another entire universe. We're going to give our construction crew, our vast uh, universe construction crew, maybe a day off. Maybe three quarters of a day. They, they, oh. well, I think they get 12-hour turnaround. Nice. Otherwise, they go into golden time. I'm not sure we can afford that. So, after a day, they're going to start building that new universe. And by the time we return next week, we will be ready to open our eyes, look at this strange new world, and say, what the if, 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 if. Bye now. <laughs>